This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Russian troops continue their advance into Ukraine, taking territory along the southern Black Sea coast and pushing west. But that's not the only front on which Russians and Ukrainians are fighting a war. Ukrainian officials are on the defensive against cyber attacks from Russian hackers, which could cripple their critical infrastructure. And we are also being warned that a cyber war could have international consequences. So how prepared are we here in the islands? The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Matt Chapman. He's a cybersecurity expert and professor at the University of Hawaii at West Oahu. She spoke with him yesterday. Chapman says we're facing a trade-off between increased connectivity and increased vulnerability. Now, we've seen over the past several years some kind of cyber aggression against Ukrainian infrastructure. Um, Really all the way back to December 2015 with um, some cyber attacks attributed to Russia again against their electrical grid. So, you know, here we are today in February, uh, well, starting off in February, Russian troops crossed into Ukraine, and there were many reports that cyber aggression against Ukrainian critical infrastructure started prior to moving troops across the border. So it's highly likely that these cyber attacks are directly in support of their military operation, and they're very specifically targeted. So for Russia to deliberately expand those hostile cyber attacks outside of that area of conflict It's certainly possible, but that would also certainly increase the scope of the conflict to a very global scale. And it would almost certainly result in retaliation from any of those impacted countries. Now, specifically in the United States, um, our government and our key industry leaders, they've been working for several years through really many diverse political administrations to increase the protection and really the resiliency of our critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. If if you look at all of the things happening politically, this is one of the very few things that every single presidential administration has agreed upon since 9-11, is the protection of our critical infrastructure, and specifically, how do we protect our critical infrastructure from cyber? Every single administration since 9-11 has been completely focused on that. Um, However, for us, our IT and our cybersecurity professionals here in Hawaii they're also focusing some more attention on this due to the aggression against Ukraine. And it does require an additional level of due diligence from what we've observed in the news recently. Are there any more specifics you can provide about how exactly we might need to change our strategy because of what we're observing in Ukraine? I think the right term is due diligence and increased focus. There was a really interesting article published recently how industry has really stepped forward to help increase cybersecurity and resiliency. As the cyber attacks against the Ukraine got a little more significant and there was software trying to say delete information on critical infrastructure in Ukraine, that set off alarms in the Microsoft Cyber Threat Center. And within a few hours, they had developed blocks to defeat this wiper software. So this increased due diligence, this partnership between the government and industry and really the global community is what it takes to uh, defeat these kinds of hostile actors. And then looking again at what's happening in Hawaii, we last spoke in December in the wake of cyber attacks that have been made against the Honolulu city and county. Do we have any more information or updates about exactly what happened there? We'll just call them cyber incidents. You know, it's a combination of, um, you know, sometimes we will get denial of service or we or things will just lack service uh, based on an event that's not a cyber attack. It seems in that instance there was a, a combination of the two. There was a lot of signs of ransomware attack without a ransom note. So with the ongoing investigation, I haven't really seen anything new um, besides the attempts to attribute that to criminal actors, you know, those that are looking for money, they, they will encrypt networks, ask for a ransom for the key to decrypt it. But as far as I know, I don't think they ever discovered a ransom note. And a lot of times that is embedded in the software that they use to encrypt it. And again, there's also some um, just normal service areas. Sometimes our internet goes down. Sometimes our uh, phones don't work or cable TV, everything we're used to, there are normal 
disruptions of service as well. So I think a combination of the two. Now, we've been talking about decision-making up to this point that's happening at the national and the state level. So what are the strategies of our cybersecurity professionals to keep our governments and our infrastructure safe? But just today, the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs for the state of Hawaii sent out a press release encouraging people to take steps to protect themselves from the massive 2021 T-Mobile data breach where a lot of people's personal information was compromised. And and looking at an incident like that, can you bring this conversation down to the individual level about what steps people might take to ensure they are protected? Yeah, certainly. So looking at a more personal and more individual level, over the past year, we've observed not only the cyber attacks in support of the military movement into Ukraine, but really that significant increase in ransomware attacks by criminal actors that we're uh, just talking about. These are things like the Colonial Pipeline, JBS, ransomware attacks. These events, they highlighted the need to increase diligence and then our cybersecurity practices at the individual level as well. So if I had to list you know, a few issues, um, I would highlight the need to update software and applications as soon as the patches and updates are available. The reason is we have on a certain timeline, our computers will say we have an update or an app will have an update. This is because there's a vulnerability found in that software or a vulnerability found in the operating system. When those patches are available, um, no matter who discovered that vulnerability, there's malicious actors or cyber threat actors, bad guys, who also get these patches and they can reverse engineer them to figure out what exactly is being patched. So as soon as the patch comes out, um, criminal actors or very highly sophisticated cyber threat actors are reverse engineering it and building tools to penetrate computers and networks that don't have that patch. So this creates that kind of race condition where when a patch comes out, there's a race between getting networks secured from the vulnerability that was just publicized against the race of how fast malicious actors are uh, building tools to exploit that vulnerability. Um, so updating your software and your applications right away is very important. Second, I would make sure I activate multi-factor authentication wherever it's available. So this will force you to use at least two modes of identification um, to log into something. So maybe a password um, and then a passcode sent to your mobile device. So there's different ways to do multi-factor authentication, things you know and things you have or maybe things you are. Sometimes we click a picture we've selected or we answer some questions. This multi-factor authentication is significant in securing your personal information, bank accounts, and things like that because now it's not just can I capture your password to get into your account? It's also important to turn off your computers, turn off your phones and your tablets when they're not in use. And I'm as guilty as everyone on this one. You think back and you think, when's the last time I actually turned my phone off? Um, that's important because some of the patches and some of these updates require, your computer will tell you most of the time, you know, a restart is required. But computers generally do get restarted on a more periodic basis, where our phones sometimes will just leave it on. So when you're not using it, it's important to turn these off. It'll secure the equipment itself, secure anybody from using um, or trying to uh, exploit the machine, but it allows these patches to install at startup. Finally, the last one, and I, these are all of our IoT, or Internet of Things devices in our homes. These could be Alexa, Apple TV, the Wi-Fi connected light bulb. There's a lot of these throughout the country and really globally. And it's important to keep track of all the things you have that do have that internet connectivity because you want to make sure those things are updated and protected with complex passwords, multi-factor authentication because these IoT devices are commonly used by those cyber threat actors to support that type of distributed denial of service attacks 
just like we observed before the ground offensive into the Ukraine. Thank you. That's really good to think about. I consider myself someone who is responsible with my passwords, but in listening to you talk, I realized I don't think I've ever turned my laptop off. It's very easy with the laptops, the tablets, the phones, and the phone is the one that I would definitely put out a reminder. Just turn it off every once in a while, let it update, make sure you knock off any connections that someone may have established to it, and yes, the same with the laptop. Well, it sounds like there's definitely more we can all be doing to keep ourselves safe. So thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it, Savannah. That was cybersecurity expert and professor Matt Chapman. He was talking with Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote. Chapman says if you're looking for more info on how to keep yourself safe in cyberspace, you can check out the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's website at CISA.gov. Water sampling from a neighborhood contaminated with fuel recently turned up high levels of something called BCEE, a potentially cancer-causing chemical. The Department of Health asked for guidance from the CDC because there is little info about it. This past week, though, the Navy announced that those results were a false positive following repeat testing and were found to be a reporting problem with the independent laboratory it used. This morning, we talked to the Environmental Protection Agency to learn more. Uh, Luis Garcia Bakarich is a specialist with the Drinking Water Emergency Response Team. He was out here in Hawaii in February and just returned to the San Francisco office. We talked to him this morning. So BCEE stands for bis-2-chloroethyl ether. Uh, It's a man-made chemical that does not occur naturally. It's a colorless and non-flammable liquid that dissolves in water, but it can also evaporate into the air. BCE is mostly used in the formulation of pesticides and other chemicals. It can be used as a solvent, a cleaner, components in paint and varnish, as well as being a corrosion inhibitor. BCE is fairly uncommon, and it's not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. What I mean by not regulated is that um, there are no requirements for water systems to monitor for the chemical, and there are no requirements to take action if it's detected. However, uh, EPA and authorized state programs, such as the Hawaii Department of Health, do retain the authority to require water systems to take action if unregulated chemicals such as BCEE are identified and determined to pose basically a risk to public health. Well, I I know the Department of Health, when they got wind of this, I think reached out to uh, the Centers for Disease Control for guidance because there isn't much data on it that it was familiar with. Uh, And I, I don't know if they got that guidance or not, but it certainly raised some alarm bells when this was detected, and it was detected from fire hydrants. Absolutely. You know, EPA has identified BCE as potential human carcinogen. And so for that, we take it very seriously. And when we saw the detections, you're absolutely right. Alarm bells were raised and, you know, uh, an investigation was launched into why are we seeing this? And so that concern was very valid. Fire hydrants are connected directly into the drinking water system. And so sampling from the fire hydrants is essentially taking a sample of the water quality directly from from the mains, from, from the water mains. And so when the, the IDWST, the interagency drinking water system team, uh, received those original results, they were taken very seriously. And as part of the investigation, they went back and resampled all 12 locations where it was originally detected. That second set of samples taken at those locations of the original detection uh, did not identify BCE in the drinking water. So when we couple that with the reevaluation of the data of the original sample set, uh, we can confidently say that BCE has not been detected in the drinking water. Going forward, I guess if there are some uh, doubting Thomases, I mean, is there? Do you think there's any need to just you know randomly sample down the road? Just check to see, make sure there's no BCE in there. 
It certainly could be, but I don't see the need to. I am quite, I'm quite confident that it's not there. Is there a possibility that the chlorination process could somehow change some of the compounds in the water to produce BCE as a, as a byproduct? And, and, you know, and, and that might be why these levels turned up in the first test? Yeah, again, BCEE, although it was reported, it was never actually detected. And it's because the lab made an error in reporting it. In looking at their original sample, as, as well as the resamples, we can see that BCEE was never present. And the military statement says that uh, BCEE is not found in JP5 in jet fuel, but it is an additive. And so the question is, you know, did the military add it to to the jet fuel? Would there be any reason to add it? I don't know if BCEE is part of a a fuel additive and the Navy would, and so I really don't have the information and the Navy would be the best source to get that information from. Going forward, because there have been other things that have uh, turned up, you know, there was lead at the uh, preschool and other compounds. You know, these are isolated cases, which, you know, is probably a good thing because then it detects, you know, uh, a problem in a particular facility that might not have been flagged had there not been this scrutiny. That's right, is that this is actually a unique opportunity that in looking throughout the water system to, you know, determine whether or not um, the the flushing was effective at removing the JP5 from, from the system, they are also able to get a good look at other potential water quality issues that may not be directly related to the release of the jet fuel. And, you know, one uh, concern that has uh, come up uh, time and again from some of the families whose homes are being tested is that the results of their sampling isn't being released to them. They're just simply being told, oh, it's non-detectable. Is EPA okay with that? Are you able to, to look at those results? I am. I was under the impression that the lab reports are available online through the the jbphhsafewaters.org sampling data. So I was under the impression that they are, that all of that data is online. Okay, well, I just talked one uh, mom who basically said that they weren't allowed to look at it, and they were just simply told it's non-detectable. Anyway, like I said, that was just a, a concern that I'd heard a couple times before and then heard it again this weekend. And I can certainly understand how it may be challenging to read the analytical reports, but it, it you know that's something I'm going to probably need to get back to you on. I was under the impression that all of the sampling data would is either is or will be made publicly available to everyone. Yeah. yeah. The other question that I have is that uh, you know while all this flushing is going on, it might be very well that the the water is clear of contaminants, but that maybe there might be piping or a hot water tank, hot water heater that Mm. somehow might be sending signals that something is in the water. Are you confident enough that we're doing all the things that need to be done? There's multiple ways of of, of looking at this, multiple levels at looking at this, you know. So there's the, you look at, you can look at this as the system as a whole, you can look at this then um, for each flushing zone, and then you could look at this at each building level. And then even within each building level, you can look at appliance level. And so, and that has, has generally been kind of the approach in looking at this. And I would like to acknowledge that there may be individual instances where problems remain once this is done. And so, I believe that the the Navy has provided instructions to homeowners on how to flush their homes as well as appliances, and sometimes flushing activities can take multiple times. Additionally, I would like to uh, point out that the the Navy has established what they're calling the rapid response program, where there are complaints where residents are are still experiencing problems 
that they should reach out to the Navy for follow-up evaluation, which can include having folks help with flushing and then screening level testing, as well as potentially doing additional laboratory analysis. Are you pretty uh, comfortable with what's being done at this point? Yeah, I am. You know, flushing is the appropriate course of cleaning a water system mm-hmm. that has that has been impacted the way that, that um, the Navy's drinking water system has, where it's contaminated by petroleum hydrocarbons or, you know, jet fuel in this case. And we do acknowledge that sometimes the initial flushing activities are, are not good enough, but it may require sometimes several reflushing to uh, adequately clean it out. And then in some in other cases, over time, it will clear out. It, it all depends on the individual's tolerance for how long that may take. That was Luis Garcia Bakarich, Environmental Protection Agency Specialist with the Drinking Water Management Program. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art's Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Self-driving vehicles have come a long way. It's amazing how in one year they brought up software that was just barely functional, but just like half there to like almost there now. Just they need to figure out some edge cases. Well, one of those edge cases, Tesla recalled more than 50,000 cars because its autopilot feature was programmed to break the law on purpose. We'll learn more. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Our reality check today tracks the latest in a conspiracy case against three prominent Honolulu residents, former city managing director Roy Amamiya, former top city lawyer Donna Leong, and former police commissioner Max Sword. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so you were uh, tracking a uh, court case, a court hearing yesterday. That's right. So there's been this um, debate about whether um, the former city budget director, Nelson Koyanagi, can be deposed and answer questions in this case. Um, The defendants feel he's really important to their defense and that if he would just explain um, how the city budget process works and how um, severance payments are made, then that would um, help help the defense of these city officials who are accused of conspiring um, to illegally give a severance payment to disgraced former police chief Louis Kaloha. So what did the judge decide? The judge sided with the defense in this case. Um, prosecutors had hoped that Nelson Koyanagi would be deemed unavailable. Um, sadly, he is suffering from a terminal illness, according to court documents, um, and his doctor has submitted a a declaration to the court on his condition. From the prosecutor's perspective, they said he should not be able to be questioned. Um, But the judge, um, Judge Leslie Kobayashi, ultimately sided with the defense and um, Koyanagi will be deposed. Exactly how that will happen is not yet clear. Um, The the judge said it it wasn't clear what specifically Koyanagi's limitations are. whether he can answer questions at length or f- for how long, it's it's kind of unclear. Um, but he'll at least have to try. Okay, but we don't know if that's going to be a video depot or when that's going to happen. We don't know the specifics at this point, no. 
And so I guess then uh, these defendants are really hanging um, their case on clarification from uh, the former finance director. The defense attorneys have said that Koyanagi's input is really important. Um, I don't know that it's the only card that they're, you know, they have to play, but um, that they they seem to think that he could really clear up a lot of things. And their argument is essentially that the the severance agreement with Louis K. Aloha, in which he got two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to retire, they're saying it was legal, it was proper. Um, there were other deals like this before that didn't have to go before the city council. Of course, the feds are saying, no, this was a, con- a criminal conspiracy and you tried to circumvent the city council. Um, so, you know, in court filings, both sides thought that Koyanagi would be helpful to them, which was interesting. Um, but we'll see what he has to say, um, I guess, in the coming weeks. And uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, they were uh, pointing out that uh, – the indictments, I think, uh, you know, may just be a misunderstanding of uh, conversations that they may have had with uh, the uh, former police chief, Kerry Okimoto. That's right. Yeah. Um, Donna Leong's attorney, Lynn Panagakis, has said that um, she believes the feds just misinterpreted some recorded calls that occurred. Um and that Koyanagi could really clear that up. Um, according to the indictment, these recordings, you know, indicated some criminal conduct. But from Panagakis's perspective, she's saying, you know, it was all kosher. It, you're you're misreading what he was saying, and he could help explain. And this had something to do with what, I guess, pot of money, um, or, or what fund the pot of money was uh, uh, coming from. You know, wh- whether right. it was legally it's- okay to do that. Right, right. So the the money for Kayla's settlement came from HPD, um, but the feds are saying that there was essentially a money transfer. And when you transfer funds of that amount, then it requires city council approval. Um, Leong's attorney is saying that's not the case and that money was never transferred. Um, So hopefully all of this will be cleared up in court proceedings in the weeks and months to come. But we're getting very conflicting narratives of what happened here. Um, You know, on one hand, the feds are saying this was a crime. Um, On the other hand, the defense attorneys are saying we were just trying to get rid of a police chief who was accused of corruption and, and make him retire as quickly as possible. So. Yeah, and and in that Kealoha case, um, you know, there had been a medical issue with uh, Florence Puana, um, you know, and they had to take a a video deposition because of her um, ill health. Um, So, yeah, we'll see how this works out, how it all plays out. Right. Yeah, it has been done before. Um, It's pretty rare. Usually you would want the person to show up at trial, but um, according to Koyanagi's doctors, that they're saying that's not really possible. All right. Okay. Well, we will watch for the next development. But thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her story, visit civilbeat.org. With Oahu and Maui dropping their vaccine card check at the doors of restaurants, what's the forecast for the rest of 2022? We talk with Doug Harris, founder of The Food Guru, which tracks daily transactions at eateries across the state. The challenge for businesses has been the surge in the coronavirus, as well as labor shortages and rising food costs. Here's Harris on what's been trending. We've got more than 150 restaurants that we uh, keep track of all their data and sales with point of sale because we measure it as a KPI. So we pull it all together and we take a look at um, the different segments across the board as far as how the overall market's performing to give us an average. And that, um, you know, we, we sort of pair all our clients against that average to see how they're doing by region. So we got that across Oahu, we've got Big Island, we've got Maui. We only have a real small sample on Kauai, but, um, and then what we do is we just track daily transaction averages and look at that as going forward. So, and then, you know, then we take a look also at uh, what 
is going on with regards to the main factors. So with COVID, we were tracking daily new case counts, which was really the number one driver in, in what was happening with regard to restaurant traffic. And what did that tell you? We saw a very a slow start, and then we saw momentum running from pretty much March all the way through to a record summer. And, you know, it was just crazy how quickly that grew into that curve. And then coming straight out of July, which, was, you know, for a lot of people, July was a record, you know, way better than pre-pandemic in 2019. And, you know, probably, you know, 10 years, some of them had best sales ahead in July. But... In August, the um, Delta variant reared its ugly head and the numbers of the daily counts got frightening. And um, then Ige, in later August, asked everybody not to come and numbers fell. And they basically cascaded down from that July, beautiful July, in August, September, October, down, down, softly down. And then November, we started to see a bit more life when they opened things up again, and there was a bit more um, confidence and customer sentiment. And then December was very strong. January and February, what we're seeing right now is it's definitely dropped off from December with regards to daily transactions. But what's interesting is when we take a look at 2021 in a comparison, we're still tracking ahead of the curve about 20 to, you know, about, sorry, somewhere between 5 and 10% where we were in 2021. So it could definitely come off a, a high and we're slowing down, which is, you know, good for, good for um, restaurants that have been sort of struggling with people and dealing with a lot of issues as far as, you know, the sudden demand in December, especially around Waikiki and Resort where you couldn't get a table. Right. You know, and w- what happened in Waikiki is we had all those military families down there as well uh, yep. in the fall. And, and then yep. they're still there, some of them. Uh, <laughs> yes. So yes. that's not my topic, though. I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Right. But but uh, <laughs> uh, but obviously, you know, there was business down there. There was. Um, and, you know, we're, we're ahead. I think what's going to happen in 2022 is what we're witnessing so far is, uh, you know, it's definitely come off a high in December, but we're still trending above last year for the first quarter. First quarter's not done yet, of course, but what we're seeing is we are seeing a growth of somewhere between 5 and 10% overall in daily transactions. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to cascade up into another good summer. I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to say record. I would say record among Waikiki and resort. You know, where you're getting strong inflows of um, visitor business, where you're servicing that customer, you're definitely going to be a surging uh, type of business model. And we're sort of preparing now to look at record numbers for those uh, businesses right now with regards to servicing those daily transactions. And there's got to be lead planning for, you know, these dis- food distributors, right, that supply these right. restaurants with yep. with everything from, you know, flour to chicken wings. Yep. Well, you know that, you know, the National Restaurant Association said that food costs raised about 9% for 2021, which is, which is high, very, very high, um, you know, largest growth of inflation costs I've seen in a long time. But um, it's not easing off too. So we're still anticipating, you know, some inflationary numbers that are going to impact menu prices. And I think what happens is, you know, it's not, you know, when you've got to uh, increase food pricing coming through, you've got to take, you've got to lift your prices on your menu. So, you know, while you've got a huge surge coming along, that surge is not going to last forever. And it is going to start settling into more of a repeat type pattern and you know affordability or value is going to play a big part in that so you know um, the trick right now for restaurant operators is in in a resort and Waikiki it's like preparing for the surge that's going to come especially you know spring break is going to be an indicator but I think you'll see summer is going to be a very busy busy time for them and they need to prepare for that now. But then, you know, after summer, I think we'll start settling into a bit more of a routine, the usual seasonal routines in the Waikiki and uh, resort business. And, uh, you know, it'll, things will settle down. So I think that segment's in for a banner year, to be quite frank. But the restaurant, the residential restaurants and the community restaurants, etc., especially QSR, which is quick-serve restaurants like McDonald's and the chains, they are going to struggle with um, trying to keep their prices affordable with the raising food costs. And I think that's, they're the, that consumer is going to be the most impacted by menu increases. Well, you know, I just know my own spending habits. You know, while I you know, wanted to help small businesses and was uh, ordering takeout 
uh, more often. When you're hitting $15 for a plate lunch, it's like, ouch. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, right? I don't, I don't, you know, obviously um, there's, a, there's a natural force. And the only thing that I think a lot of the QSRs that are going to do okay are the drive-thrus because people are still using the drive-thrus like crazy. And the big you question know. mark uh, is the international traveler, you know, when yep. we'll see a return from Japan. Yep. And, of course, Golden Week is just around the corner. I, I don't think they're anticipating a big influx in for uh, until the you know, in June, July, I believe, from the from the Japanese visitor. No. Yeah. So, so yeah. At, at this point, then it's just being cautious and maybe no, but just you're right. See, the seasonal drop that we normally get after summer, I think we're not going to see it this year for for those uh, restaurants are serving those communities because you're right. You know, the whole um, Japanese market's going to come back, and you know, I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of pent up demand with. The stress that people been through mentally, they want to get they want to get into Hawaii and relax and you know and they have a break from COVID. So yeah, I think it's going to be a big year. Anything else you can tell us just uh, with the other islands? You know, it's funny because um, when we look at Maui, uh, Maui's very visitor driven with regards to resort business um, on the labor pool as well as um, servicing guests. And providing guests, so I think Maui's going to have a very good year with visitors. The Big Island, I think, you know, like they did pretty well with 2021 with the volcano activity, and that got a lot of people visiting. And you know, that obviously they're sort of traveling around the island, so the the restaurants and the neighborhood businesses servicing those clients as well as the residents did well. But I think um, the biggest thing on the Big Island is more so probably the Maui is that. Uh, they really had a hard time through the pandemic. So, you know, there's still a lot of existing debt and issues that they're going to be carrying forward for at least two or three quarters. So when we just launched an initiative, which is called shopbigisland.com with the county, which again is trying to get people to spend more money locally and supporting local businesses and sort of putting, giving them a, um, you know, like a canvas where they can put their goods up in front of uh, a group together as, 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 you know, one entity around called shopbigisland.com. And um, Mayor Mitch Roth just did a PSA to start promoting the site too. So we're excited to sort of try to help stimulate more activity there because they definitely have had a hard time. We've been hearing from Doug Harris of the Harris Group, who's been tracking daily transactions in more than 100,000 restaurants across the state. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, a member-based community for ages 50 and older. There are no tests or grades, just the joy of learning. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Ralph White, author of a memoir, The Jeweled Highway. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the quest for a life of meaning. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. And if you look around the buildings across the state, there's a good chance local architect Daniel Chun has had a hand in their construction. Chun and his partner started their firm in 1981 and designed recognizable structures like the Stan Sheriff Arena, 
the Kulana O'iwi Moloka'i Education Center and the Liliuokalani Trust Children's Center on Kauai. But you may not know that he's also had a role in things you don't see, like enacting laws requiring green building standards for state buildings, funding for art in public places, and mandatory continuing education for architects. Chun sat down with the conversation's Russell Subiono to talk about his 40-plus years of helping to shape architecture in Hawaii. What drew you to architecture? Do you have an affinity for drawing? Are you captivated by buildings? What led you to become an architect? I think I attribute this as some for to family to begin with. My father is an accountant in his grandfather's business, but I think he had some inkling to be an architect because he designed one of the houses we lived in. I thought he did a really good job. I mean, he didn't, you know, he had a drafting service help him and construction company, but I'm saying he he worked on the design of it, and I believe he's actually done maybe more than that, at least, you know, as a schematic, what we call a schematic kind of thing. So I think my my father had some inkling to, to do some kind of design architecture work. And then one day I was talking to my great aunt, and she said to me, oh, when your grandfather was a young boy, He'd draw, spend a lot of time drawing pictures. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. I never knew that because, you know, again, he had worked in, into the uh, great-grandfather's business. And, you know, they got, let's call it, consumed by the business world and maybe didn't lack the free time to do that. And then my mother's brother is a civil engineer. So I'm just saying I think there was some kind of, you know, family, maybe people sometimes say it's genetic, but I think that there's some kind of family background. And I think, you know, I always had an interest in drawing. I have a lot of artworks and my mother, I had a very doting mother. My mother saved all my drawings from my, you know, about the age of nine or 10, going into the teenage years. So I still have uh, a lot of drawings that I had done when I was a boy, which I think is, you know, they're hanging on the walls of the house. Architecture is an intersection of art, history, and performing arts. So that I think that really attracted me to kind of like synthesize those sort of things. And of course, you know, unlike some parts of art, it's a very permanent kind of art. You know, it's kind of frozen there because it's been built in, in concrete and wood and other permanent materials. I still remember... Uh, when I was in high school, senior, and my English teacher, Paul Berry at Punahou, he, he said, Dan, asked, what are you going to do for a live, uh, in college? What are you going to take up as a major? And I said, oh, I'm studying architecture. And he said to me, that's a wonderful way to spend a lifetime. And I've never forgotten you know, what he said to me. So I think that's the kind of thing that drew me you know, into this profession. As the years have gone on, as we as a community have realized the importance of being more environmentally responsible, especially here in Hawaii, where there's a finite amount of environment, when did it become apparent that we needed to implement green building standards here in Hawaii? And what was your role in making that a priority for our state and county governments? Well, you know that I've been the legislative advocate for the American Institute of Architects since the early 1990s. And what we found is that until architects embrace green building requirements, it's not going to be passed by the legislature. That's my experience. In other words, you know, in America, many movements start out, let's call it a fringe movement, for lack of a better term, right? The needs of the day are started by some outsiders, abolitionists, right? Mm -hmm. Abolitionists. And other people start a, or the, you know, like call it civil rights movement. It starts as a fringe movement, right, and works its way to be bigger and bigger. If, if it's if it's a if it's an important thing to be pursued, right. and one of the political parties will then take it up and make it kind of a mainstream thing. So I think that what's happening is until architects embrace sort of green building requirements, it really doesn't become kind of like law. And, and furthermore, it doesn't even become a reality, okay? Because I, we're the ones that hold the pencil, mm -hmm. you know, and we're the ones that allocate the budget amongst the many demands in the building. So it, it really takes, a, let's call it, the personal commitment on the architect 
to, to make it successful. Because if you look at all of these green building laws, they all have kind of like exemptions and other waivers, things like saying it's practical and can be, you know, cost effective. Now, of course, those are important. But it, they really do, when you look at the actual legislation, which I helped to draft, they actually do give the, the architect quite a bit of leeway, you know, in the, in the execution of, of, of the building itself. And one thing I wanted to, to add, because, you know, I talk to members once in a while about green building requirements, and I know we get complaints from the building side that it keeps adding to the cost of construction. So members have told me, there's two things that are most important in the green building movement in for Hawaii. The first one is energy, just because we have the most elect, expensive electricity in the United States, right? right? Right. The most per kilowatt hour, very, very expensive. So saving energy, and that's money going out of Hawaii's economy. That's the most important. The second thing they said they'd like to focus on is water, all right? For example, water quality, right? You know, all of the streams in the state flow down to the ocean, and they're, if we have too much siltation, we'll kill off the coral reef that's protecting the island. And now we have sea level rise. So I think the, what the members have told me that as a kind of like subset of grid building design, they really want to focus more on electricity and water quality, sea level rise. And for example, I see bills in the legislature related to, you know, carbon sequestration and other kinds of building requirements. You know, one of the things that impressed me about your accomplishments is what you and your design partner, Dwight Kawahikawa, were able to do with cultural design. When you started your firm in the early 80s, it was right around the height of the Hawaiian Renaissance in arts like hula, music, and art. Your firm took the opportunity to integrate cultural design into several of your architectural projects. Why was this integration of cultural design important to you? Well, I think, you know, I set about in my mind to make my partner, who I, I really like, mm-hmm. to be the, I call it the eminent Hawaiian architect of his generation. Okay, and history can be the judge. But I think that was done for, I call it public expectation. You know, you take the Hawaiian Renaissance movement. I think the people of Hawaii, most of us are immigrants, and of course, even native Hawaiians have came here from Tahiti and other places to the south, really love this place. And so there's a public expectation that, you know, Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian ideas would have a prominent place. If you, if you take a look at the current food movement right in America, right? There's food all over the place. Mm-hmm. And this local food is like trumpeted on TV, etc. Everything is like local specialties, you know, hamburger joint in the neighborhood, for example. So I think also in a world growing more homogenized and internationalized, architecture is one of the places where people can, let's say, perpetuate and, you know, permanently kind of like present the uniqueness of a place. So I don't think that our architecture is unique in the sense that it's the only one trying to have a strong regionalism or, you know, local type of design. I think all of my fellow architects have that feeling for the places that they live in. Well, at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of interest in called it international appeal to buildings. It all depends on, you know, the, uh, I'll call it the desires of the client, of course, that's important. But I'm saying just public expectation. I think Hawaii's public feels like having Hawaiian architecture is one way. I think it's a popular thing to do if it's done well. What's your favorite building in Hawaii? (laughs) Wow. Or if you can't narrow it down to one Give me like two or three that you sure. that you love. Well, you know, I think my buildings are among my favorites. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm trying to think. Well, of course, I think the Honolulu Museum of Art is a wonderful building. I think most architects probably would rank that near the top. Um, maybe I'll just leave it at that and explain to you why. You yeah. know, because Bertram Goodhue was an architect actually from New York City and he evolved into a great regionalist because he had houses in Santa Barbara. He designed the Caltech campus and all those other kind of things. And 
Um, the one thing, even though I'm saying it's my favorite, I think the work of my firm has gone beyond that. And I don't mean it's topped it. I'm saying that if you think of the Academy of the Honolulu Museum of Art, you know, the, the, the one-story uh, design, the use of pitch roasts, and those are all formulas from the 1920s and 30s. But when we did our work at the office, we we tried to go beyond that because basically today's buildings have different kinds of floor plans, different program requirements. People don't always want long, skinny buildings. They want, I say, bigger, squarer types of buildings and seems to work with a modern floor plan. So although those are great historic examples. I think that the approach that we started to take in our office, you know, using building materials, motifs, place names, Hawaiian personalities as the inspiration for the design, that <clears throat> opened the way to, you know, have a broader expression, I'd say a Hawaiian cultural expression in a larger number of buildings. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and okay. learning from you. And that was local architect Daniel Chun talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For his decades of contribution to our state, Chun will be awarded the American Institute of Architects Hawaii Medal of Honor this Saturday. It is the highest honor an architect can receive. That is it for us right now. Up tomorrow, we delve into the history of our Red Hill fuel tank farm. We plan to hear from two men who wrote the application to get the massive underground facility declared a civil engineering landmark. Do you know of anyone who worked on the construction of the installation? It was top secret at the time, so you might not have heard too much about it. But we'd love to hear your stories. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.